Hello, this is the Contractor Coffee Club podcast presented by EGIA, and I'm your host, Mark Madison. This podcast is hosted on egi.org slash podcast, where you can also find links to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, along with an archive of all previous episodes, a submission form for our listener Q&A, and the link to take the latest EGI snapshot survey. In today's episode, we're going to talk about sales. Everybody's in sales. The only question is, how good are you at it? I remember the first time I sold something. I was 11 years old, and there was a there was a show on television that I loved, Brakeman Bill. He had a he had a donkey puppet, and he was pushing Jerry Lewis's muscular dystrophy and raising money for Jerry's kids. So he he said, send a self addressed stamp envelope. And we'll send you the carnival kit, how to have a carnival for muscular dystrophy. So I did. And I got the kit and I had a carnival and I raised $11.32. I was 11 years old. And I mailed it in. Well, I remember my sister saying, $11, let's go buy some candy. And I said, no, no, this is for Jerry's kids. And she shook her head and said, you're an idiot. She walked away. Three weeks later, Ron Haight, who was kind of the jokester on a Little League baseball team, said, hey, they announced your name on TV. And I said, what? He said, oh, yeah, uh, you had some kind of carnival or something? I said, yeah. He said, yeah, you won like a $50 box of fireworks. And I went, shut up. He said, no, 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 really. So sure enough, you know, three to six weeks later, that's what happened back then. You three to six weeks for delivery or six to eight weeks for delivery. I got my box of fireworks. And my sister said, hey, let's set them off right now. I said, no, 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 we do it at night. She said, you're an idiot. She walked away. But guess what? That was my first experience in I'm in sales. How good are you at sales? As long as I can remember, I, I've been selling. I remember I took 40 cents that my mother gave me for lunch. I got up 30 minutes early and I walked to Ferdale Village. With that money, I invested in penny and nickel candies and proceeded to sell those treats to my classmates in first period woodshop. I sold the penny candy for a nickel and the nickel candy for a quarter. I turned 10 penny candies into 50 cents and six nickel candies into $1.50. Minus the initial 40 cents, that was a whopping $1.60 in profit. Over the next 30 days, I made $48. In 1969, this was a princely sum for a kid from Forest Glen. It was my first lesson in supply and demand and turning a profit. The next month, I had some competition, and of course, the whole operation was eventually shut down. However, I, I proved to myself one simple thing. I could sell. Sales is an act of pure creativity. To be successful in sales, it requires a host of admirable qualities. Pluck, drive, determination, assertiveness discipline, listening, presenting, negotiating, tracking and measuring, qualifying, overcoming objections, and closing skills. The list goes on and on. In today's session, I'll attempt to capture some of the lessons I've learned over the last 48 years since I was selling candy in woodshop. I love to sell. I'll be selling till the day I die. So how to have a 75% close ratio? That's quite a claim. Well, I understand. My first year in sales, I had a 25% close ratio. And then I started listening to audiobooks, cassettes on sales. And I started keeping a journal. And after every single call, I would ask myself, what did I do right? What could I improve? And the following year, my close rate jumped to 50%. Then I got, came across the idea of reading books on sales. So I got up a half an hour early and I read for 30 minutes and my sales went up again. I got up an hour early and read for an hour and my sales went up again. But the following year, I had a 75% close ratio. And look, if I can do it, anybody can. I have a year of junior college. I had a I had a 3.0 in college, blood alcohol level. So there's that. Everybody sells. 
We sell our children on doing their homework, our spouse on the vacation spot we want, our employees on committing to their corporate vision, values, and goals, and our prospects to buy. But first, we must be sold ourselves. We can't sell something we don't believe in. I tell contractors when I do seminars, look, I don't care what brand you sell, whether it's Carrier or Train or Lennox or Goodman or Amana, it doesn't matter. What matters is, do you have that brand in your, in your home, in your office? Do you have it in your mother's house? Do your employees all have that brand? You see, if you walk your talk, you can transfer that belief in whatever it is you're selling. And honestly, that's all sales is, is a transfer of belief. It starts with enthusiasm. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, enthusiasm is one of the most powerful engines of success. When you do a thing, do it with all your might. Put your whole soul into it. Stamp it with your own personality. Be active, be energetic, be enthusiastic and faithful, and you'll accomplish your object. Nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. Let me repeat that last part. Nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. How enthusiastic are you? Why do we love, why do we love dogs so much? Have you ever watched someone with a dog toss a ball into the ocean or lake only to see the most enthusiastic canine dive into the water? Bring the ball back to his master over and over again. If he or she throws the ball a hundred times, the dog will chase it every time without ever losing its enthusiasm. As he drops the ball, he wags his tail as if to say, throw it again. It's amazing. The dog might be a little winded, but the enthusiasm never wanes. If only we could be half that enthusiastic. The adjective entheos translates to the English as full of God, inspired, possessed. It's the root of the English word enthusiasm. The Greeks use it as a term of praise for poets and other artists. It means to come into being. How committed to your product and service are you? Do you love what you sell? Would you like to dramatically improve your sales this next year? If the answer is yes, then start by putting that brand in your home and in your mother's home. Winston Churchill said success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. The late, great Jimmy Valvano, the championship basketball coach from NC State, said, how do you go from where you are to where you want to be? I think you have to have enthusiasm for life. You have to have a dream, a goal, and you have to be willing to work for it. Dwayne Johnson, the actor, says, attitude and enthusiasm play a big part in my life. I get excited about the things that inspire me. I also believe in laughing and having a good time. I agree. So what can you do to increase your enthusiasm so you can increase your sales output? Well, here's my list, and this is what I suggest. If you're driving right now, pull over. Grab your journal and jot it down, or listen to this podcast again later when you can take notes. Here we go. Number one, make a list of all the reasons your product or service will benefit your customers. What are they going to get out of it? Number two, invest in and use your product or service faithfully. Become a true believer, a missionary for your products and services. Number three, set specific goals that force you to stretch. What if you sold 20 to 30% more than you did last year? Pencil that out. Do that over a five-year period and watch what happens to your sales. Number four, be enthusiastic. You must act enthusiastic. Is a bird happy because he sings or does he sing because he's happy? Number five, hang around enthusiastic people. People inspire you with their enthusiasm. My world's divided into two categories, anchors and speedboats. Either pull me forward or you're dragging me down. Number six, read books that instruct and inspire for 30 days as a test. Get up a half an hour early and read in the morning, first thing. I read a couple hours a day. I have for years and years. There's something about getting just one idea from a book. That's all you need, just one idea. And number seven, decide to double your enthusiasm for 30 days. Smile more. 
move. Next time you're at the beach, watch that dog dive in the water after the ball. Notice how much fun he's having. Why not you? It's a choice. Fetch for crying out loud. One friend of mine said, you can't sell unless you make the calls. Zig Ziglar said the top salesperson in the organization probably missed more sales than 90% of the salespeople on the team, but they also made more calls than other people made. Sales is an art and a science. The art is the soft skills. The science deals with the numbers. How many calls do you make each day? I interviewed Pat McCarthy, the author of The Nordstrom Way, shortly after that amazing book was released. He told me over breakfast, the turning point in my sales career came when I committed to making 40 calls a day, no matter what. Now, I don't care what you sell. You make 40 calls a day, you're going to be wildly successful. Pick a number, 5, 10, 15, 20. The key is, if you're new to sales, especially lies in making the calls. I had the privilege a number of years ago to speak to 400 salespeople from Aflac in Wisconsin. And I had the number one producer stand up, and I asked him a really simple question. I said, why are you so successful? He smiled, and he said, well, I don't know about that. But he said, uh, I make 40 calls a day. I quack loudly every day. And I offer a choice of yeses. And I stopped dead in my tracks. And I said, I hope everybody heard what you, he just said. I'm going to repeat it for your benefit. Number one, he makes 40 calls a day. Pick a number and stick to it. Consistency is the key. Number two, he quacks loudly every day. He really believes in Aflac. He believes in his product or services. And number three, a choice of yeses. Which yes would you like? Option one, option two, or option three? There's something magical about offering three options because you change the buying dynamic from if they're going to buy to how. When I was 23 years old, I started a chimney cleaning business. I ran into a chimney sweep one day on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle in April. Now, April's a slow month for chimney sweeps. As we talked, he was covered in creosote and he just finished cleaning a chimney. He asked why I wasn't working. It's slow, I said. Nobody cares about chimneys in April. He looked at me as if I had two heads. That's simply not true, he said. If you knock on enough doors, you'll have all the business you can handle. He went on to tell me that after cleaning a chimney, he knocks on 25 doors, handing out business cards, or until someone says yes. It was a paradigm shift for me. From that day forward, I convinced repeat customers to let me clean their stoves and chimneys in the spring, leaving the fall open for new customers. And I knocked on 25 doors after every cleaning. My business boomed. Frank Betcher, in his sales book, how I raised myself from a failure to success in selling rights. You can't collect your commission until you make the sale. You can't make the sale until you write the order. You can't write the order until you have an interview. And you can't have an interview until you make the calls. I was a technician for 10 years. I accepted an offer to sell full-time. The reason I had success my first year in sales was simple. On the advice of my friend Les, who had made the President's Club at Xerox five years in a row, who advised me, if your boss tells you to do two proposals a week, you do four. I did five a week. Although my close ratio was only 25% that first year, I was 150% of plan. The reason? Activity. I made the calls. Mary Kay Ash, the founder of Billion Dollar Makeup Company, said, pretend that every single person you meet has a sign around his or her neck that says, make me feel important. Not only will you succeed in sales, you'll succeed in life as well. Jeffrey Immelt, the CEO of GE, said, I love working with customers. Sales has really influenced everything I do. It's instilled in me the important traits of operating with a sense of urgency and listening to people. Ben Feldman, superstar salesperson, said, goals aren't enough. You need goals plus deadlines. Goals big enough to get excited about and a deadline to make you run. 
One isn't much good without the other, but together they can be tremendous. So three simple suggestions to increase your sales this next year. Number one, double your activity. If you're making 10 calls a day, make 20. Number two, track your activity. Where performance is measured, performance improves. And number three, be honest with yourself about the numbers. Hey, if your close rate's 10%, look in the mirror and say, my close rate's 10%. I'd sure like it to be 20. Tom Watson, the founder of IBM, told his salespeople in the teeth of the depression, double your failure rate. If you see twice as many people over the next six months, you'll learn everything you need to be successful. And then ask yourself in your journal after every call, two simple questions. What did I do well on this call? And then think, and what could I improve? It won't be long. You'll be the top producer in your company. Take it from a former chimney sweep. Just make the calls. You'll be glad you did. Uh, Lucas, before we go any further, uh, we had a snapshot survey, right? We did, indeed, yes. Um, last month. Tell and, us about that. And, sure. Uh, so for people who aren't aware, every month EGIA surveys its members on um, a specific topic to figure out how contractors are evolving their business practices to achieve maximum success, kind of best practices, see real time what's happening out there in the industry. Uh, and then at the end of the month, we compile this into a, a snapshot survey summary report. So last month, we, uh, we talked about employee benefits. We asked people about employee benefits, um, stuff like health insurance, 401k, um, just to see what people are doing, how much they're doing, what they're spending on these programs. So I just wanted to highlight one of the questions. Do you currently offer health benefits to your employees? And we had 63% um, of companies said that they do offer health benefits to their employees, which means 37%, of course, do not. Uh, I think this is kind of a really seems like a vital question right now, just because access to healthcare seems to be becoming a bigger and bigger conversation, especially in America right now. Uh, so it's just sort of an interesting topic. Uh, so I wanted to kind of get your take, Mark, on on that that number, or maybe benefits in general. Sixty three percent of companies are offering health benefits, uh, and then sort of yeah, just the idea of health benefits or employee benefits in general, and, and how companies are using them. Absolutely. Well, there's an old expression: control the labor, control the market. And every contractor around the country, you know, is is dying for more people, more of the right kind of people. Uh, Starbucks is a local company. Everybody knows Starbucks now. There's, I don't know, 40,000 stores, some ridiculous amount worldwide. But one of the things Starbucks does, uh, even with their part-time employees, they offer full benefits, medical, dental, uh, and they have what they call Beanstalk program. It means if you put in a dollar, they match it with two, and you have Starbucks stock. So, I mean, here's a company that their managers make about thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year and work 60 hours a week. And, of course, their frontline folks, the barristers, make less than that, considerably less. But their turnover is one of the lowest in, in retail. It's, it's less than 50%, which is a staggering number in retail. So, you know, take a, take a lesson from Howard Schultz and offer, offer benefits. And I, I would add a few things to that as well, if, if you don't mind, uh, Lucas. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so in addition to offering great benefits, uh, what, what's the movie with Kevin Costner? If you build it, they'll come, right? Build dreams, yeah. Build, build the dreams. So if you offer it, they'll come. Decide to become an employer of choice in your region. You know, last uh, last podcast we interviewed Eric Knack. Uh, if you build it, they come, and they do come to Rochester, New York. They do a phenomenal job. They offer a significant amount of training. That's the next thing is train your employees. I remember having a conversation with uh, a guy named Chuck, who at the time was running a $25 million service company, uh, commercial service company here in Seattle. And I was doing some training for his company. And, and he had the CEO of the 
of the construction side, which was doing uh, like $150 million a year, uh, attend my session. And Chuck was trying to pitch Fred on the, uh, on the notion of, you know, committing to training. And Fred said, you know, the only problem I have is if I train these people and they, and they leave. And Chuck said, there's only one thing worse, Fred. And Fred said, what's that? If you don't train them and they stay, <laughs> I could have kissed him. You know, it was like, because he said it, it was true. If I had said it, I would have just been selling. Yeah. Right. So that's the second thing is you, you absolutely have to both soft skills and technical skills. You know, teach your, your guys how to troubleshoot, but also teach them how to listen. Right. For every dollar of high tech, you need high touch. So I, I work with a number of companies that when you walk in uh, to their break room or into their foyer, the first thing you noticed are photographs of employees. Right. So that's such a simple concept. Put photographs of your employees up on the wall and have their name up there as well and how long they've been with the company. Um, the other thing is uh, I, I remember sitting in on a on a monthly meeting with uh, the folks at TD Industries. And this is this is a company that's made Fortune magazine's best companies to work for list for 20 years in a row. And they happen to be a mechanical contractor in Texas. And they do. The first thing you do is they acknowledge the employees who have been there the longest. And they consistently have guys and gals who have been there for 40 years. So acknowledgement and recognition, whether that's, uh, you know, photographs of them or uh, one of my clients has pictures of their gatherings. So the picnics, the, you know, fishing at the lake, uh, the, the different things that they do, they take pictures. And every year they have a kind of a mural of, uh, of photographs and that goes all the way around the break room. So the company's been in business for 15 years, there's 15 murals on the wall. And I just think that's a great way to acknowledge and recognize people. So uh, William James, the father of American psychology said the deepest craving in the human condition is the need to be appreciated, right? And the next thing in, in, in my personal opinion is simply ask your employees on a regular basis, what, what can we do to improve around here? I had a dear friend and, and former client, he's since sold his business, his name was Don, and he had a really successful uh, service business in Southern California. And Don did something I thought was really cool. He would ride once a year for two weeks, he would ride with his technicians. And he said, I'm your apprentice today, I'm gonna carry your tools. And while he did that, he would ask them, you know, what are we doing right? And what one thing could we improve? And over time, you know, they said things like, uh, why are you charging us for soda pop? Or another person said, why are you even offering soda pop? Why don't you make sure we have free water? So he had free water at his company. Now, you might think that's a little thing, but it's a big thing because he asked and they answered and he listened and then he, and he took action. So eventually they did uh, training every Friday in the morning. Uh, he, he would bring in breakfast and he would feed him and teach him. Breakfast brainstorming, you called it, and lunch and learns, right? So in a short period of time, he, he grew his business to $40 million. And, and it was because he took the time to really listen. And not a, lot of, uh, not a lot of owners are willing to do that, Lucas. Yeah, well, it sounds like, to, and this, I mean, this even come, kind of comes back to the benefits, I guess, is that they're just manifesting in different ways. But the, what, 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 you're, what I'm hearing is you're showing your employees, you're demonstrating to them how you value them. You're making sure that they feel valued. And that could be through any of these initiatives. That could be through a 401k match saying, I care about your future. That could be through health benefits. I care about your health, your family's health. Or it could be through exactly what you're saying, sitting down listening, offering them you know, little things that they're asking for. 
Huh, you're exactly right. Back to my friend Chuck. He uh, he would send uh, an, a happy anniversary card and an anniversary of the technician's uh, employment. But he would send flowers and the card to the wife. <laughs> right? So when the technician gets home that night, he says, I hate this company. I'm leaving. And she says, no, you're not. <laughs> she's rearranging the flowers. That's next right? level right there. That's, that's, that's chess versus checkers. Oh, my gosh. The other thing he did was on the technician's birthday, he would go out to the job site and he would bring a cake uh, with candles and he'd sing happy birthday off key. And he would have a card signed by all the people in the office and he would sing happy birthday. And uh, I just remember thinking, who does that? Yeah. You know, no one. Right. Yeah. yeah, he was he was an amazing guy. Well, he is an amazing guy. He's not dead or anything. I mean, he's, he's retired, but he built a couple of successful companies and sold them. And now he's living the the life in St. George. But um, hopefully, Chuck, if you're listening, I'm still giving you props, man. So and in an industry, I guess, where the number one complaint we hear from any from any contractor is that they can't find good people to hire. Right. These are all right. little things that are a going to be magnets to to hire good people. But also, once you get those good people, they're going to keep them there rather than, you know, most people who leave for an extra dollar an hour somewhere else aren't leaving for an extra dollar an hour somewhere else. Right. They're leaving for other reasons, like an extra dollar is two thousand dollars a year. That's divided by 12 or 24. If you're getting paid twice, you take out taxes like that's that's a very small amount of money. Yeah, it's not the money. It's it's in my first book, Freedom from Fear, I talked about everybody from eight to 88 wants three things, appreciation, respect and understanding. A-R-U. And if you're doing that, if you're showing appreciation, if you're showing respect, if you're showing understanding, uh, they're going to stay. And again, it's not more money, right? It's it's the lack of appreciation. It's the lack of recognition. It's the lack of saying, I'm so glad you're on our team. You know, having guys like you is the reason we're so successful. There's one more thing I would add, and this is important. Uh, turn your employees into salespeople, right? So offer cash spiffs. Uh, whatever gets rewarded gets repeated. So it's the greatest management principle in the world. So if you, can you think of anybody who might want to, you know, come to work here as a technician, if you do, we'll pay you, you know, $2,500. And just to get, if we hire them, you know, this referral, we'll give you a giant spiff. And in 90 days, if they're still here, we'll pay you another $2,500. And, you know, I can hear sphincters tightening, around the country, 25, well, what? that's crazy. No, it's not. Think about that for a minute. Pick a number. I mean, I don't care what the number is. I know, I know contractors would pay a lot more than that. But if, you, if you're turning your employees into salespeople, they're going to be looking for those kinds of referrals and looking for people because birds of a feather really do flock together. Yeah, and that's viewing it, I guess, is again to go back to the benefits because that's you know during the snapshot survey, a lot of people that were saying they didn't offer benefits were just saying they don't have the money to offer benefits, which is you know which is a fair statement. However, we, it's you have to look at it as, a, as an investment more than the cost, right? Just like you're talking about spiffing people to bring in new employees, the point is that, that retaining good workers and adding new good workers is a value added uh, activity for the company, so it, it's it makes sense to pay for it. Right. The last thing I would add was uh, offer flexibility. Uh, my friend Steve has a very successful uh, service company, and he has he offers four 10-hour days on rotating schedules. So his guys get three-day weekends. And when I asked why this was so effective, he said it's because they can coach their kids or go on long weekends or spend more time with their family. And I just thought, geez, that's such a simple idea, four tens. Why not? Yeah. 
Uh, but that wouldn't work, you know, where you are. But it was great where he is. <laughs> um, and so just to just to book in that, yeah, that uh, the. The Snapchat survey summary report on employee benefits is now out there. If you're an EGIA member already, just go to EGIA.org, log in. It's in the member dashboard uh, or in the Snapshot survey summary report. Um, it's available to all EGIA members. And uh, yeah, like I said, we do it every month. Um, we have one ongoing right now, and it'll be ready to go at the end of the month as well. So Excellent. I have a sales question. Well, we have time for one more little segment. Yeah, well, I, had, I wanted a follow-up question on your, on your sales discussion. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so I, I hear a lot very often, um, and in fact, I just heard this on one of the Ask the Experts calls. Somebody was asking uh, Weldon how to the, – the, there's a, a constant fear, it sounds like, among a lot of salespeople that they don't want to come off as the pushy salesperson. Uh, and Weldon's answer on that was, I think he said that, you know, you want to you make sure that the, the problem that's being cited really is the problem because a lot of times that complaint is really just – somebody saying they don't necessarily want to run the entire sales process or they don't want to, they don't want to learn the entire sales process. Uh, do you have any, any in insights into to people who you know, want to do better in sales but don't want to be, quote, the pushy salesperson? You can't be shy. You have to ask for what you want, which is a nice segue into confidence, which I'll talk about here in a minute. Weldon has a close I really like. He said, are you willing to trust me on this project? What a great close. What a, it's such a simple idea. Right. Weldon's a smart guy. He sold a lot of stuff. Right. So first and foremost is going back to you have to believe in what you sell. And one of the things I used to say was, if this was my mother's house, what a teller is. Right. Now, who would give bad advice to their mom? No one I know. Right? Well, maybe one or two people, but not many. Right. Ninety eight percent of the people you meet out there aren't going to give mom a raw deal. So if you do the right thing, you don't have to worry about you know, what you said or what you do. So, and you also have to believe in what you sell. And if you, if you truly believe that what you're offering is not only in the best interest of your clients and your prospects, uh, but it's in the best interest of the company as well, this is a good deal for everybody. And you have to believe that. Um, sales is like a four-legged chair, trust, relationship, competency, and timing. Now think about this for a minute. Uh, if you don't trust somebody, are you going to buy from them? Yeah, no, of course probably, not. Probably not. If you don't like them, are you going to buy from them? No. No. If they're incompetent, if their motto is fix it right the eighth time, are you going to buy from them? No, I don't think so. Probably not. And finally, timing, right? If the timing's not right, they just bought a $60,000 truck. Are they going to buy a $10,000 add-on replacement unit? Maybe not. Maybe it's a timing issue. Okay. But if all four of those legs are in place, the deal's probably going to happen. Trust, relationship, competency, and timing. It's so simple. And whenever I lost a sale or a sale was on hold, I would ask myself those four questions. Do they trust me? Do they like me? Am I competent? Have I demonstrated that competency? And is the timing right? I remember a deal that took two years to close. Why? Because it was a timing issue, right? So I'm patient. You know why a bulldog's nose slants backwards? I'm excited to hear why. So he can breathe while he hangs on. <laughs> Okay. All right. So let's do one last segment and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Fair enough. Sounds great. Yeah. Nobody's ever accused me of not being confident. And I wasn't always that way. It's something I had to learn. Dale Carnegie said, blacksmiths sometimes twist a rope around the nose of a horse. And by thus inflicting a little pain, they distract his attention from the shoeing process. One way to get air out of a glass is to pour water in. Be absorbed by your subject. If you're not fascinated with sales, if you're not 
reading about sales, thinking about sales, talking about sales, you're not going to succeed as well as you could. The number one fear most people have is public speaking. Number two is death. That means most people would rather be in the casket than deliver the eulogy. Patricia Fripp, a very famous speaker, once told me, when you leave your house, all speaking is public. How true. If you're in sales, and who isn't, you must get comfortable speaking in public. Yogi Berra said, if you can fake sincerity, you got it made. I've read hundreds of books on the art of speaking and have profited from each one. That said, there's no substitute for actually talking to others. Action cures fear. Here's some ideas that will give you more cash, K-A-S-H, knowledge, attitude, skills, habits. They'll instruct and inspire. How do I know? I worked hard on all four of them for 30 years. So get up an hour earlier each day for study and reflection and skills training. If you do this for 21 to 35 days, it'll become a habit. And a good habit will give you the confidence you need to present with passion, conviction, and belief. So here's my list of seven things to dramatically increase your confidence. Number one, read books on public speaking. I have an ebook called Presenting Like a Pro. Check out my website. It's, it's a terrific little ebook. It's like $4.95. Come on, you can borrow that from your kids. Number two, watch YouTube videos of talk show hosts and comedians and TED Talks. That's number three, TED Talks. I'm working on mine right now. Number four, invest in public speaking course like Dale Carnegie or Toastmasters. Uh, number six, practice on your friends and relatives every chance you get. I'm constantly writing new material, new ideas, and I test them whenever I go to Starbucks. If someone laughs, I gotta, it's a good bit. If not, I toss that one and try again. Number seven, make a list of stories from your own experiences, first person. And uh, I tell the story a lot, but it, it certainly bears repeating. I remember the first sale I made, it, I just changed a five-ton compressor on a building in uh, downtown Seattle. It was only four years old, this building. And so the equipment, you know, was no way it should have, that compressor should have died. It was a five-ton unit. And the, the owner of the building was complaining about, you know, the cost of the repair, the compressor. And I said, well, I said, only the good die young. He said, excuse me? I said, well, this compressor never should have died. It was only four years old. It's like having an engine in a car die after four years. It's crazy. He said, well, where are you going with this? I said, well, look, look, it's your building. You do what you want. But the sad thing is there's nine other units on the roof just like it all waiting to die. You haven't changed any belts. You haven't replaced the filters. Uh, we haven't cleaned the coils. You've done no maintenance. And so it's tick-tock. You know, they're just, it seems like a shame only the good die young. He said, well, what are you suggesting? And I said, well, if this was my mother's house, if this was my mother's building, what I'd tell her is, Ma, you got to let me clean the coils. You got to let me replace the filters and the belts. Whatever it costs me to do that, it's going to be more than made up in lowering the operating costs and extending the equipment use for life. And he said, okay. He said, I'll take it. I said, I'm sorry. What is it you're going to take? He said, whatever it is you're selling. I said, no, no, I'm not in sales. He said, the heck you're not. Write it up. Now, I didn't know, Lucas, what it was, but he wanted it up. So I went back to the shop to talk to the sales guy. And I don't know, he was water skiing or something. He wasn't around. So I went into my boss's office. Best boss I ever had. His name was Carl. Great service manager. I, and he was on vacation. So now what? I had a dilemma. What to do? So I went through files, found five buildings similar in size and scope, added it up, divided by five, came up with a number. Seemed a little low, so I added 50%. I figured if I was going to get fired, it was on a high-margin project. I typed it up on an IBM Selectric typewriter. Uh, Lucas typewriters were these things that we had. Ah, never mind. And so I took it to the guy the next day, and he signed it without even looking at the price. When I brought it back to Carl the next day, he said, who told you you could do this? I said, the customer. He said, good answer. See, that was the day I became a salesperson. 
I told him what I thought I would do if it was my mother's building. When you speak in the first person, and see, I just got done telling a story about sales. That actually happened to me, and every word was true. So if you're sitting down at the kitchen table with a prospect, tell a story. Tell a story about a customer or a prospect that was in a similar situation as that person. And tell it with flair. Tell it with enthusiasm. Tell it with gusto. You see, stories are sticky. and It's important to touch the listener's head and heart. And that story is an example of what I mean. Each of us has a story like that. Your job is to uncover yours and get good at telling it. Does that make sense? It does indeed. How are we doing on time? Uh, we're doing okay. Okay, good. Do I have time for one more story? Yeah, I think so. These are what I call stories that stick. And I'll tell you the story, then I'll tell you the seven, seven ways to get stories to stick. Fair enough? Let's do it. In England in 1967, it was a magical time and place. My mother was born and raised in Uxbridge, a short train ride from London. I was 10 years old. My father, a retired Air Force vet, was sitting poolside reading his paper, as was his custom. I was in heaven in the Brighton pool. It was the size of a football field. There were three diving options, a regular diving board, a 10-foot board with a tremendous spring, and the daunting 35-foot high-dive platform. To a 10-year-old, it may as well be 300 feet. But I gathered up the courage to jump. It was the most exciting and exhilarating experience of my young life. And I swam over to my father, and I said, Dad, I'm going to go off the high-dive. Watch. And, you know, for a 10-year-old, all he seeks is those two magic words from his father, love and proud. So that's what I was hoping for. So standing on the edge, I looked over to make sure that he was watching, and I jumped. And just before I hit the water, I glanced back, only to see he'd gone back to reading his paper. And then I hit the water. The whole of my stomach remained there for a really long time, years. I remember thinking I must not be good enough or he would have watched. And I carried that erroneous belief around with me for many, many years. In 1993, we owned a lovely home with a sweeping view of Puget Sound, Mount Baker, Snowcap Peak, and of course, a swimming pool with a diving board. And it was nine feet deep. Evan, our youngest son, was three. He and I had been splashing around the shallow end of the pool, he with his little water wings and me with a great deal of patience and love. We spelled love, T-I-M-E. He went into the house to get a bite to eat, and I sat in the shallow end of the pool reading the Sunday New York Times. Lost in an article, I heard a little voice say, Dad, watch. I looked up, and there was Evan on the diving board with a Cheshire cat grin, waiting. Evan, I said, are you going to go off the board into the deep end? Smiling broadly, he replied, yeah. I sat up, folded my newspaper, and I sat on it. I wanted him to know I was watching, and what he was about to do was important to me. He jumped, and when he came out of the water, he breached like a whale. His grin started slowly and went all the way up to the bottom of his ears, the biggest smile I'd ever seen. He saw that I was watching. He swam over to me, jumped into my arms, kissed me on the cheek, and said, I love you, Dad. I said, Evan, that was awesome. I'm so proud of you. I love you, too. In that moment, the sins of the Father were healed. I was able to forgive my father for the sins of omission and commission. You see, like all parents, he did the best job he could with what he knew at the time. I was able to let go of that pain, all from the love of a child. Not giving a thought to the consequence of the next phrase, I made a big mistake. I said, do it again, son. And he did over and over and over. And for the next hour, it's all he did. William James said, action seems to follow feeling, but really action and feeling go together. By regulating the action, which is under the more direct control of the will, we can indirectly regulate the feeling, which is not. The sovereign voluntary path to cheerfulness, if our spontaneous cheerfulness be lost, is to sit up cheerfully and act and speak as if cheerfulness were already there. If such conduct does not make you feel cheerful, nothing else on that occasion will. So to feel brave, you must act brave. 
and use all of your will to that end, and courage fit will very likely replace the fit of fear. In other words, act as if. If you act in loving ways, the feeling will follow. Now, I tell that story a lot. It's an important story. And I think it's an important story because it's a sticky story. So here's seven ways to tell a sticky story, and then we'll conclude. Number one, every great story must contain something useful, a moral, a practic some practical advice, a proverb, a maxim, a lesson learned. Number two, it must come of experience. First-person experience is most effective. Either it's a warning or example, or both, but it's personal. Number three, it must affect our head and our heart. Funny or poignant, it must remind us how we feel. See, great stories are universal. When you touch someone's heart, everyone can relate to that. Number four, it must seem possible, appealing to the everyman. Again, that universality, we must be able to relate. Number five, it must be open to interpretation, free from explanation. The reader or listener draws his or her own conclusion. Number six, if it's a third-person story, it must be accurate, researched, true. The categories best used for examples and are particularly useful regarding loss or joy. And number seven, the story must be told with sincerity, belief, and emotion. A few weeks after my poolside epiphany, my father came over to the house on Father's Day. Evan ran up and jumped into his arms and kissed him on the cheek and said, I love you, Papa. My father melted. He smiled and replied, I love you too, Evan. His force field was down. See, Evan got through. This was the first time those words had ever crossed his lips. Then he looked at me with an odd expression, one I'd never seen before, and said, I love you too, son. You're a good father. No one can say otherwise. If you're waiting for a loved one to make the first move, don't. Life is short. Tell the people in your life how you feel. Forgive their sins and slights and missteps. Let those old resentments go. Forgive and forget. Take the initiative before it's too late. Because everyone you meet is looking for three things, appreciation, respect, and understanding. What I would give for one more day with my dad, I need to call my son. Well, Lucas, I think we're out of time, so that'll do it for today's episode. As always, visit ega.org slash podcast to find this episode and an archive of previous episodes, the online form to submit your questions for our mailbag segment, links to subscribe to the Apple Podcast or Google Play app, and a link to the latest EGI snapshot survey. For more information about EGI membership, visit www.egia.org slash join. I'm Mark Madison. Thanks for letting me play in your sandbox. I'll see you next time.